the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. This episode is ostensibly about The Chair, the Netflix original series starring Sandra Oh and created by Amanda Peet and Annie Julia Wyman. The show is about the first woman of color to chair the English department at fictional Pembroke University. And it's a fascinating snapshot of that challenging position and the peculiar interpersonal politics of faculty and administrators. But in this episode, the chair functions primarily as an ur-text, onto which we can graph our conversation about the profession of literary studies and the higher education system in which it is embedded. A conversation which is most directly provoked by an essay published in PMLA a few months ago, simply entitled, The Shush. One of my guests today is the author of The Shush, Keila Wazana Tompkins, who is Associate Professor of English and Chair of Gender and Women's Studies at Pomona College. She is author of Racial Indigestion, Eating Bodies in the 19th Century, as well as numerous shorter works about U.S. literature, feminism, queerness, and biopolitics. We're also joined by Michelle Chihara, Associate Professor of English at Whittier College. She's editor of the Economics and Finance section at Los Angeles Review of Books and co-editor with me of the Rutledge Companion to Literature and Economics. Her writing on critical finance, economics, media, gender, and post-45 U.S. literature appears in numerous venues, both academic and mainstream. To learn more about our guests, including links to their work, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash the shush. A few weeks ago, Michelle suggested that I should read this wonderful new essay in PMLA, and I'm a little ashamed to admit, but I don't usually read PMLA habitually. Okay? I read this really sort of idiosyncratic essay and have been eager to, to think about it and talk about it, but it also happens to coincide with the release of this much-anticipated miniseries on Netflix about English departments specifically, and more broadly about campus life focusing on faculty and administration. Mm. And I, I think that there's so much in what Keila says in The Shush that is also engaged with intentionally or unintentionally by this show. And so I want to spend some time talking about the show, but I think we have to start. I encourage everybody who's listening to go read Keila's essay, and there will be links in the show notes and at marktwainstudies.org. But let me ask Keila to open for us, what is the shush? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for reading it. And, and thanks, Michelle, for sending it around. I appreciate it. I was asked, I think, in maybe like July or August of 2020 by uh, Weichi Dimock, who is editor at PMLA, to write an essay for the theories and methodology section of PMLA reflecting on the state of affairs in 2020. And as it came due, I just couldn't write. And I'm not someone who can't write. I, I just, I, I'm never writing blocked. I'm always right. I write every day. I don't, I'm usually someone who won't edit. <laughs> Editing is a whole other thing. Revision is a whole other thing, but I'm never someone who can't write. And I just couldn't write. And I started to want to talk about, for me, what has been one of the most uh, challenging aspects of professionalizing as, as a scholar which is um, how many secrets we're all asked to keep about our institutional lives, about our professional lives, um, about our colleagues, about our working conditions. This is a profession that places a high premium on civility. And I've been thinking about civility for a long time and thinking about how the conditions of civility as a kind of unspoken 
uh, well, it's unspokenness is, is its key, right? But civility codes sort of entrap you in an abuse structure where you can't talk about what's happening to you in the house that you live in. And then the bifurcation between that and the conversations that I have with other scholars who are friends or other scholars as we become friends, often other women, often women of color, often junior women. I put a lot of effort and time in trying to be available to junior women scholars. And the stories we tell each other and the way we're supposed to speak about our institutional lives are just two different things. As I sat down and tried to write the piece, and and Michelle will remember this, the entire sky was mustard yellow from the Southern California fires, and my car was covered in ash. It was like Tatooine, like the sky was blood red. Not the sky, the sun was blood red. And I just thought, I can't live with the silence anymore. I really need us to start talking to each other about the conditions in which we live. This kind of caterwauling about the crisis in the humanities, which is a real crisis, I suppose, but how little we actually talk about what would really be the solutions, the solutions that get the most traction. And you know, my first two degrees are in English. My PhD was in modern thought and literature, where I did fields in English. I grew up and have spent most of my life in relation to the study of literature now. And the solutions that are circulated in, in our profession the most really seem to be working very hard to build up an idea of what our discipline should do that is about finding logics to shore up ways of working that really just aren't speaking to the world anymore and really aren't speaking to our students. And we don't take that seriously. So I really, I was just trying to kind of put together these these different ideas that I was having around what, what does it mean to love the humanities and love literature and want what we do to survive and to believe in the university, not the university as it is, but the university as it could be and should be and the university that we all dreamed of being a part of when we went to graduate school. And then how we live. And I guess the third part of it, for me, the crisis in English literature departments has everything to do with its ongoing epistemic violences, the the ongoing stories of the difficulties that people of color and that women of color in particular have in English departments. And you see it in the chair, but we see it in our own institutions too. Women of color teaching enormous classes without mentioning any particular English department, I can recall one fall where three women of color in this department were teaching almost 200 students. The five white men were teaching a collective number of like 50 students. Things like that shouldn't happen. And the data is right there in front of us to tell us what is one of the ways forward to not just improve our living conditions, but to actually revitalize the department, revitalize the field. But we keep being overinvested in these sort of tired narratives. That's what was all going on in my mind when I sat down to write the shush. There's a lot to follow up on there, but I want to get Michelle to come in as a reader of the shush. You know, you clearly had a visceral response to this essay, if you don't mind me saying. Like, what what was it that struck you about it? Um. She has a phrase in that essay, she talks about coerced non-disclosure. And she just talked about the secrets that we carry, the things we can't say out loud. I got into academia after a number of years as a journalist, second career for me, and also as a writer, a creative writer first. And in the essay that I published a little while ago in Post 45, I talked about neoliberal gaslighting, which I think was trying to get at some of the same things. <laughs> When I was a journalist, we were in a different national situation, and there was a lot more of that coerced non-disclosure. You couldn't say you were a feminist out loud. One of the things I try to convey to my amazing, woke, badass students now is what it was like to, to really be afraid that you couldn't function professionally if you said the word feminism out loud, right? Never mind trying to talk about race. And, you know, when I was a journalist in Boston, I, I was the only non-white person from California in the editorial staff. And the, the bullying that I was trying to deal with was very subtle and it was really hard and I couldn't talk about any of it. And I came to academia partly because I was like, this is a place where people are talking about some of this stuff. 
That was one of the things that first drew me to English. Politics and criticism were one to me when I got into this. One of the things that I think the chair has trouble seeing is what criticism gives to academics, to people like the Sandra O oh character, who is a 46-year-old Asian woman in an English department. I would have been chair of my department this year if I had not bowed out to go into the independent major at the college. I did that probably because I really didn't want to be chair. <laughs> but watching her do that, the thing, even in the way that they talk about literature on the show, yes, I came into English because I loved literature and I loved writing. But I also came into academia because criticism was there. And for me, it was senior women of color and the work that they left for me that showed me what English could be. And you don't see Sandra, oh, you don't know what her work is in the show. And you don't see her responding to criticism. You barely get to see her teaching. But the thing that English has really given to me is these classrooms full of students of color, of queer students, of activist students. Whittier is amazing in terms of the student population that I get to work with. They are also, at least at my college, predominantly not upper class, middle class. Most of my kids are working class. Many of them are holding down two jobs where they're trying to do this stuff. And being able to be with them and to read criticism with them is amazing. And that's why I'm still in this game. And so the thing that I get from people like Kilo <laughs> in Kilo's work in this essay, but you know, it was, you know, the people who handed me Hortense Spillers, the people who handed me, you know, Franz Fanon in the beginning, right? Those people were the reason that I stayed in academia when I faced, and this is what Caritha Mitchell calls it. She, she has an essay that's called White Male Mediocrity and Know Your Place Aggression, which someone tweeted at me before I had tenure. And I was like, oh my God, take it down. You can't say that out loud before I have tenure. But now that I have tenure and now that we're talking about the chair and not just me, I think it's important to, to show that this is what English gives you too. It's not just in the show, they talk about kind of empathy in literature and thinking from someone else's position. And I'm like, yes, but also politics. Mm -hmm. you know, the students in the chair don't remind me of my students because they seem unsophisticated in the way that they're trying to do politics. And sure, of course, sometimes that happens. <laughs> but I look at those and I don't see my students who are teaching me things who are coming to me and, and thinking with me about how we use the language, about what it means to read stories, what criticism allows you to think about the world that it opens up for you. I'm learning from them as much as they're learning from me. And, and I don't, that's the part that I don't see in the chair, but that's the part that I get from Keila's essay and from other people in the academy. Thank you. Let's stick with that question of, how teaching is depicted. I agree with you that if we want to see the chair as a representation of life in the academy, it gets a lot of things right. Yes. But one of the things that is missing is like, how do you represent the critical life of these scholars? Their investments, their politics, their methods, how do you represent that in a television show? That's a very difficult thing to do, but it's crucial to understanding who they are and why they allow themselves to be exploited, abused at times, <laughs> obsessed and fixated, why they tolerate the culture of the campus. Part of it has to do with the things that they care about that are very difficult to represent on the screen. But one of the things that they can represent a little bit is teaching. And I think you can tell from these scenes that the, the writers know something about pedagogical theory, and they know that one of the tensions within the academy is between people who are trying new things in the classroom, who have self-consciously the relationship with their students that Michelle describes, and people who are holding on to the, I'm the authority figure standing in the front of the class. I need to get what's in my brain into your brain. And, and only then, once you've learned what I've taught you, can you be critical about it. 
And I think one of the interesting things about what the show does is in each classroom, you get a very different teaching style. There's all these different sort of pictures of what a, a college classroom and an English classroom looks like. And this is something that I, I talked about with Karen Tonkson a little bit in the last episode. And yet it's not clear what the pedagogical lesson or investment of the show is. How does the representation of teaching in the chair capture the tensions of the university at this moment that Keela is discussing in the shush? I'm not sure I, th I do enough thinking about teaching in that essay, honestly. I mean, I've written elsewhere about teaching, but I, in that essay, I'm probably not thinking enough about it. I appreciated about the chair. I appreciated the ending, which ended up on, an, on a note sort of inherently arguing that teaching is what redeems us. <laughs> teaching is what redeems us. I appreciated that very much. I just don't know how any show produced for any television network that is not the BBC in like 1963 could ever actually represent the utter boringness of our internecine rights. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they cannot be as interesting to other people as they are to us. <laughs> in the nicety of their details. The show did a good enough job of sketching out certain kinds of tensions between traditional forms of pedagogy and innovative forms of pedagogy. I mean, I teach it a, I don't like the word elite, but I teach it, I'll say privileged. I teach it a privileged, over-endowed, over-wealthy institution. And it's the only place I've ever taught except for, you know, guest gigs and uh, graduate school. And what happens in my classrooms with my students, because it is as collaborative as it can be, given obvious provisos like I'm grading them, is kind of dazzlingly adventurous and brave and difficult and kind of the last pure workspace that maybe there is. Many of us work in difficult conditions. I do not work in difficult conditions. I have an extremely privileged job. Uh, but many of us work in difficult conditions, but many of us still get to close our doors and do the thing that we do well that we've been doing for 20 years and magical things happen there. And there are very few workers in the world who have those spaces of non-surveillance. Now, th is that evenly distributed? No. My friends who are adjuncts or who are working in writing composition classes, they have some limited freedom to do the thing that they do beautifully, but there's a whole like surveillance uh, thing in place that I don't experience, that I'm unfairly privileged to have not experienced. So, I mean, I appreciated that the chair ended on that note of like, okay, there's all this bullshit, but then we're in the classroom reading Dickinson together. Like then we're in the classroom reading Gwendolyn Brooks together. That was pretty wonderful. I'll say as a Melvillian, I found the modern groovy pedagogy scenes unbearable. I really did. Me too. It was just awful. I think I'm a pretty good teacher, at least within my context. I might fail in other contexts horribly. But all last year during my first semester teaching in the pandemic, I taught Melville. So it was all on Zoom, and we also worked in Hypothesis, because, you know, Melville's all Gutenberged up, right? And so we did a whole, our own Hypothesis annotations into a shared Gutenberg Bible, and we did a lot of that. And I would say I'm a pretty old-school English literature teacher in the sense that we deep dive into the text, and then we can go wherever we want, right? But we start with a deep dive into the text, and it was just sacred. It was just a spiritual experience to be with these students. It was a multiracial class. It was more women than men. And it was magical. So so my so I guess like my my got my back up at the whole like Hamiltonian energy of the like singing and the rapping and like what about Melville? Wasn't he a wife? Yes. Okay, like yes, we had those conversations. I feel like we had those conversations in the eighties and many of them were answered very well. Yes, Melville was horrible to women. Let's read him through that. We're still gonna read him. Yeah. I was really glad that on one level it did recognize teaching as what redeems us. And I love that phrase, but the politics did seem to, they seem to come from the eighties a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sandra O oh 
it kind of, you know, comes back around, which she does, you know, to like her romance with Bill becomes the romance with the institution. <laughs> and I thought of the thing that Sarah says to me, the institution will never love you. But also I was like, and she has a moment in that same scene where she looks out at the students and says, they're going to see right through us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was really glad that she had that because she's dead right about that. But I was also like, that's the problem with the whole Hitler narrative. Mm-hmm. These students are either malicious or dumb in the way that they take that moment out of context and circulate it about him. That's right. And I could see students taking something like that out of context if they wanted to bring that professor down for some other reason. Mm-hmm. But we don't know that other reason. Right. So that means that they're taking that out of context and doing that to him on social media maliciously or unsophisticatedly. And either way, that's not the students that I see on college campuses right now. That's not, those are not the students who are trying to circulate petitions about ethnic studies, which they're also doing in the chair. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And those students who are doing that or organizing, they are educated about this stuff and they are coming into it and they're looking for the professors like Yaz who are going to give them a vocabulary to bring about institutional change. They don't need to, like tear down Melville for not having enough women in the book, right? They're they're more sophisticated about representation. Yeah. Yeah. And they're looking for people who are who are able to give them a vocabulary mm-hmm. to say what they want about Melville. And it's much more sophisticated than that. Mm-hmm. Especially the ones who are in the English department already. Mm-hmm. So that was where I was like, hey, you know, it's like you've got so much of it. And there's so many moments in the show where I was like, ooh, someone said that to me. <laughs> Oh my god! So I had to pour myself a drink in the first episode. I just, mm-hmm. I, I, my partner, who's a labor and employment lawyer, was like, "I can't. I'm not watching this with you." He's like, "I. We've had so many conversations for so long. I'm not. I can't be in the room. I will not be watching it. It stresses me out. I don't want to be here." I went and poured myself like a triple Negroni. It was so. <laughs> I, and then I and then I really then I really got into it. No, I I totally agree. I totally agree um, with Michelle. And and also, you know, this is a little bit of the connection that I tried to make in the piece from Pamela, which is that the connection between our working situations, our pedagogical challenges, and what would actually course correct the discipline—they're the same thing. Yes, mm-hmm. they're yes. the same thing. We have to get out of thinking from scarcity. Because the scarcity narratives that we are offered are false scarcity narratives. Not in every institution. There are real scarcity narratives in other institutions. But like there actually is enough money to go around if we just redistributed it properly. There actually could be enough enrollments if we just kind of opened up our doors to more ways of thinking. Like how many English departments have lost lines to ethnic studies, to women's studies, to AFAM, where people just get to tenure or they have the opportunity to renegotiate and they're like, I can't live in this department anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's a loss. Absolutely. It's a net loss. So many of my friends in gender and women's studies at different institutions across LA started their careers in literature and in English departments and are delighted that they'll never have to work in one again. And that's English's problem. It's brain drain. It's an, it's an ideological problem and it's a brain drain. And I also think that it plays right into the kind of divide and conquer strategy of the neoliberal university. It's not only that English departments are losing really good people who don't want to deal with the toxic culture, but also those people and those departments, women and gender studies and African-American studies, all become precarious immediately because they don't have the safety in numbers that English has, and they don't have the institutional necessity that English has because of its association often with general education and with writing, right? And so it's both bad for English departments, and although they might get a certain amount of relief on an individual level, it it makes scholars of color and women more precarious because they're in departments that are probably going to have less resources and less protections. But more students. Well, that's the thing, right? To the extent that we can, there's so many short-sighted things that I think English departments across the country have done that are in the vein that that Keela's talking about here. The way that teaching itself is devalued and feminized, especially when it's teaching writing, 
the writing component. And so these dynamics in English that the chair gets quite well, they're office politics, right? So on one level, they're internecine battles that no one could care about at the same time that like the office, right? They're also the office politics of many neoliberal offices. Mm-hmm. But the, the divide and conquer strategies, when English doubles down on the idea that teaching is not important, that what's important is our research on the canon, that the canon's cultural authority is where our court, cultural authority derives from, Mm-hmm. That's where we lose the future. Yeah, I think yeah. and, and I think those things are connected. The way of teaching Melville that's depicted from Eliot mm-hmm. is connected to I don't teach writing and I'm not going to pander to the students, right? And pandering to the students involves changing the way we think about what the canon is and means. And pandering to the students also means really getting into the trenches on teaching writing. The dynamics around that are complicated, and it's complicated as a woman, particularly, who's always being asked to do more service, both by my colleagues and also by the students. The students really want a lot of me and my time, and it is unquestionably what redeems me. It's the only reason I'm still here, but it's it's a lot. It's 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 a lot of labor that goes in there. And... That great books idea has been a way of pushing composition out of the English department and excising it from what we do. And I think that was incredibly short-sighted, not only because the students want different books, they want a different understanding of what English means, but they also really want a kind of instruction that's really time-intensive. And yeah, it takes a lot of work, but if that's not what we do, then we are going to become archaic and and we're going to become classics yeah yeah (laughs) like english is going to turn into classics yeah the allergy to interdisciplinarity i mean i mean all of it is just you know race suicide um i was going to say another thing that uh, you know just to riff off of what michelle said i'm not trying to hold netflix to uh, a reality index as someone said haritha wrote that article saying like yeah i appreciate it as a representation that said, one thing that was absolutely not convincing to me was Sandra O's incompetence, because to my mind, there is no woman of color who reaches tenure who is not a better administrator because so much of our institutional lives are dictated by heavy administrative labor. And I'll say the thing you're never supposed to say, which is that I actually really love chairing. I've chaired for 10 years. I built gender and women's studies at Pomona. And it's booming. I mean, it's booming with three women and trans people of color. We have as many people waitlisted for every single one of our classes as we have people in our classes. We need more people. We need to departmentalize. We need to have more people. And, I, and I'm super proud of it. And I really love chairing because I love getting resources to people who need it. That stuff is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun to find resources if there are resources. It's fun to get resources to people. And I like the imaginative work of thinking structurally. To me, that is true intellectual labor. And it's also a labor. It's a labor politic to be able to imagine and manifest in the tiny spaces of agency that we have, the tiny spaces of autonomy that we have, alternative ways of living against the imperatives of the institution, whether they be surveillance, whether they be risk management, industrial complex, whether it be HR, whether it be unimaginative, no saying deans, that work is fun. Like that's fun for me, that chairing work. So I didn't believe that anyone with Sandra O's history could be chair for the first time and not be really excellent at it. I mean... Well, maybe this actually it speaks to um, your strengths as a human and my weaknesses, Kilo. But one of the things that I felt uncomfortably seen by was the moment where Yaz says to Sandra O, oh, you act like you owe them something. And she says, you think I got here by being nice. And then she has, the, her face is so amazing. Oh my God. But then there's this moment where she kind of takes in what's just been said to her yeah, and realize, I think realizing, though I have been acting like I owe them something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That really, I mean, and I think some of it is being Asian American and femme in the Academy where on the one hand, it feels like a space where your expertise is going to be valued 
as expertise and where it's just, you know, it's been this consistent process of senior white people usually really reaching out to me and, and seeming like they're going to take me seriously until the moment where they don't. And, and the, the number of times that I've been taken in by that still surprises me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so watching Sandra, oh, on the one hand, she's not surprised by the dean coming in and asking her to do that, to turn on her colleagues and, you know, using austerity as, and these metrics to, to turn it. Well, she's not surprised. And at the same time, she does seem back on her heels at all times trying to deal with this. And that's familiar to me. Like on the one hand, I feel like I've dealt with so much bullshit over the course of two careers that I should be ready for anything. And every time I'm not, I, I have a moment of being like, when when do I stop being naive? Like, I know all the politics of what's going on here. I don't think it's a question of strengths and weaknesses. I mean, I'll say that I definitely came to a point in my career where I realized that the niceness that I offered was actually the alibi I was giving to the institution to enable its racism, that my niceness was actually the condition of them not expanding the institution in ways that would facilitate my well-being. And I took my niceness off the table. And when you give up your likability, even if you make the gains, it still hurts. You say this is a, it's a discipline or it's a... yeah. It's an aspect of many disciplines, but I think a lot of the institution is structured around formal civility. I hate it. Yes, as in that final meeting, right? When you're untenured, you read the bylaws, right? Uh, you, yeah. You, you know the structures inside and out. This conversation comes back to where Keila started us, right? This economy of civility and silence and secrecy. That's what makes the show universal, from from my perspective, although our institutional situations, our students, our resources, the size of enrollments, all of those things might be rather radically different from place to place. The internal politics of trying to sustain some unspoken rules of civility and trading within faculty and administrators, personal politics, secrets and silence. And I will act this way and I will not say these things to these people or in this setting in order to preserve or protect or gain something that I need within the institution, right? That's what speaks to me, despite being a privileged white guy, in Keela's essay, it speaks very directly to me. And I think that show sort of speaks to many of those same things. This is a sort of exchange system that when we don't put a name to it, when we don't talk about it, that facilitates its perpetuation. That's right. And and in the face of ridiculous backdoor shenanigans. Yeah. Ridiculous shenanigans, <laughs> you know, and inequities and Jennifer Doyle said this to me a long time ago, what you may never do in the academy is reprove anyone. You may never reprove or rebuke. Reproving and rebuking is somehow the most taboo encounter mm-hmm. in the academy. But sometimes we have to say difficult things to each other. Sometimes we have to say, you've been teaching the same course for 10 years every fall and there's only three students in it. And maybe you need to rethink the first couple of weeks of your teaching, like at least be nice to them till they can't drop it. Oh, like whatever. We have to be able to speak honestly to each other and say difficult things. Mm -hmm. I mean, tell me the nice way to speak to an institution and tell them that they are behaving illegally and or racist and or sexist and or violent in a way that will make me friends. There is no civil position. There's no civil position. And when you try to operate it through civility, actually you're dismissed. And then when you, when you're uncivil, you're dismissed, but at least you're scary. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough gig. I I still couldn't do anything else. Like, I mean, I think I could do other things. I've done other things. Both Michelle and I came from journalism. Actually, both of us uh, were, were journalists, but you know, journalism doesn't exist either anymore. Um, Actually, watching the chair and just living the last year or so, I've been doing big thinking about whether I could do something else. 
Yeah. Um, and it's partly because in the biggest picture, I've really thought a lot about the question that the chair raises at the end, which is what does literature and literary studies mean to me? Mm -hmm. Why am I in this? The teaching is unquestionably part of why I'm in this. And I made a decision early in my time. I, I teach at a not prestigious, not well-endowed college. We have an endowment, but the scarcity mindset is really hard to get out of. But I made a decision really early on to make sure that I never treated my students like I thought they were less prestigious. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I was educated, you know, I went to Yale undergrad and UC Irvine graduate school. I've operated in prestige spaces for a long time. And right from the beginning, when I heard in the background, the chatter about how our, you know, we're, we're the most diverse liberal arts college in the country a lot of the time. And when I would hear the chatter in the background, which, you know, it wasn't usually said out loud in front of my face because, because I'm of color, right? Right. but I hear, you know, we just have to get back those East coast students, right. Which is all code for somehow we have to become the, the white, whiter college again. You know? So from the beginning, I was like, no, I'm going to show these students that they are just as good because they are, they're amazing. The less prestige is not, it, it doesn't define them in any way. They are working a lot and, and trying to teach to students who have less time is a real thing. But in thinking about all of this, I'm like, do I care what I teach them? If, if teaching is the thing I have to hold on to, could I imagine some other form? I mean, what if the English major as it is, is, is not the thing that redeems me or that I can redeem? Because of the continual austerity imposed from above, I've been really inspired by the leadership of the current president of our college. But like I, I came back from pandemic, the, the tech budget, people have been teaching online for a year, the tech budget was frozen for faculty. I came back to an office that didn't have a phone that has like capped bathroom fixtures in it. It's just bizarre and no computer. And I went and had to buy myself my own computer so that I could function. Our retirement contributions are still frozen. We are incredibly underpaid as a faculty. And to come back to that, which is like, maybe I can't, maybe, maybe this isn't the thing that where I, but how could I keep the students? Yeah. How could yeah. I keep them if I didn't keep English? Yeah. God knows what will happen, but I'm coming up for full this year. And I, I've been thinking a lot about something Kiesi Lehman said on Twitter one day. He said something along the lines of, people are always threatening me that they're going to come after my university gig and get me fired. And he was like, please fire me. This, <laughs> he's like, this is my side gig. I'd be wealthier and happier if I was only writing. More of a platform. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I've really been thinking about if and when I get through to full, like, what does that look like for my relationship to the institution? And I've had somewhat of something of a flipped career because I've been chairing a program and building a program since I was untenured, since I was a junior person. And so I've done that thing, you know, like I'm at mid-career and I've done that. I've done it all. Like I've done all the building. I've done all the chairing. I don't know that I want to do it anymore. But I have been really thinking like, what if academia was my side gig? Like what are the other kind of world making things that I could do? Maybe I'll take a year off and go train with like the AFL CIO and maybe I'll do labor organizing. I'm, I'm first gen and I come from a union family and I believe in good unions. And I believe in unions, not simply as labor organizers, but also as anti-racist like a working union is an anti-racist entity. It is doing anti-racist work because anti-racist work and labor work are the same thing. So my answer to many of the kind of ills of the of the university has, and that's sort of where I end the essay too, is labor. It's labor. We need unions. And now that the Yeshiva University decision happened, faculty and private institutions are now no longer classified as management or classified as workers. And we should be unionizing Right now. right now. And we need to unionize ourselves and then we need to support staff in unionizing or vice versa, whichever comes first. The staff are outrageously exploited. Even at a wealthy institution like Pomona, the entire staff live on at-will contracts. They can be fired at a moment's notice. Anybody that isn't tenure track at Pomona is on an at-will contract. 
a lot of the work that we need to do. And that includes the work of defending the historical work of the, of the university as educators, but also as engines of research. We write into history. Whatever else we do, we are documenting and writing into history and for the record, no matter the discipline. We are writing into history. And that's also kind of, to me, sacred work. And the only people who, who value that are us. I mean, if the institution can't monetize it in terms of grants, they don't think it's worthwhile. The only way we, we create the power to make the interventions we need is through labor. It's the only power we have. What seems to sort of tie a lot of these things together for me is an ambiguity within this institution and within our departments about what the praxis is that we value. That on the one hand, we can talk about teaching, right, which is a very has a very vague outcome and praxis to it. But writing, as Michelle said, the thing the thing that you're lusting for is to teach people to write, right? To give them that tangible, accessible skill and also to write yourself. Keila talks about activism, right? And the thing that you want to produce is, you know, more lines for, for professors within your institution and also better labor conditions throughout the college and, and, and indeed beyond the college, beyond the classroom. The thing that gives me the most sense of purpose is producing open access resources, right? Like breaking down the firewalls to information and actually producing stuff that anybody can get their hands on that's reliable, that gives them a view of Twain's actual writing, right? In, engage with this manuscript, look at these annotations. You can see this map, you can tour the house. Like that's what I care about, right? It's making stuff that anybody can have, right? Regardless of their situation. Not paying the publisher an open access fee myself exactly Exactly. i'm not being paid for that (laughs) in every one of our cases there's a praxis that we are invested in the institution does not necessarily care about or reward maybe more so in in some cases than others but oftentimes the thing that we are driven by is a thing that we created and made our job and continue to make space and time and use our own resources to make our job independent of whether the institution recognizes or rewards it. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about the chair too. Juju is so often the character that I most identify with. (laughs) And the moment where she says to her mom, you don't help anybody. That just like, is a gutting way to think about what is the university doing to help, right? I don't buy it though. What happened to me in classrooms made everything possible for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I read, what I came across, Michelle put it so beautifully towards the beginning of our conversation, the ideas that were possible that critical theory felt like a praxis, that it felt like a rematching of the world, you know. And again, I don't have to seduce my students to the topic. You know, I don't have to seduce my students to the utility of what they're learning. I did when I was a TA. When I was a TA at Stanford and we were teaching comp, we were teaching classes, students would say things like, I'm here to learn how to write an efficient business memo for when I'm a businessman. (laughs) You know, and my friends at other institutions who teach in ethnic studies, who just like, as I talk to them, one particular private institution that has been scandal ridden lately, like, you know, that they're teaching ethnic studies, and they're girding their loins for the year. (laughs) They're just like, I'm going to have to have those conversations. Like, why do I have to learn about this? This is a gen ed class where you have to take a diversity class for the gen ed class and they hate it. And I hate teaching them. And I'm really lucky that I don't, I don't have those fights in my classrooms, especially in gender women's studies. And I, but I think in English too, like there are different kinds of texts, but I teach them in the same way and towards the same end, which is that I want my students to have encounters with the world where they see the cracks in the world that the world is pretending is not there. Mm-hmm. Like I need them to be able to read the world. Yeah. Like Lauren Berlant once said to me that my pedagogy is you want them to know life is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's 
right. I do. I want them to know life is hard. And I want them to be prepared, but, and also to, to know that it's also beautiful. And and I think the other thing too, the classroom is like, don't forget. And this is a very feminist pedagogy. Like for instance, I was ranting on Twitter the other day about how it is that auto theory styles itself as its own invention when like women of color have been doing it for like 40 fucking years. Mm -hmm. Women of color did this right across the seventies and eighties. That kind of pedagogy of you think you invented this. So let's look how it was done. Same and different a while ago. Like the work of history actually really is what it is. Yeah. Of historical mm-hmm. non-forgetting. Yeah. I love that, by the way. Yeah. My students, the, one who, the ones who know me well, and the students that I'm still in touch with from my first year at Whittier, the idea that anyone would say to me, you don't help anybody, like, that's that's not the, that's not my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I sometimes say I need to get a, a social work degree because sometimes I'm too much the counselor. And there are times, especially because I teach creative writing, where I'm in situations where I get a lot, like a a lot is coming at me and I'm like, I need to be trained for this. I think it's something that is common to women of color in the academy where you you end up with your office door open and and, uh, need for mentorship in a particular way that other people aren't getting. And I would never take that element out of what I do. But there there are times when I'm like, I, I need to for my kids who would never say that I don't help anybody, but do say things to me like you're not here. Your office door is closed. But I also want to say that I also love to do. Well, I agree. It's, it's not that Juju's wrong when she says her mother doesn't help anybody. But what's, what's true about that is it's, it's impossible for her as a very young child to put any kind of words to any kind of precise definition on what the help is. And even for Ji-Yoon and even for us, that's hard. There's a Garth Greenwell line. I, I won't be able to get it right off the top of my head, but it, it's something like the, the worst thing about teaching is that our actions either have no force at all or a force beyond all intention. And not just our actions, but our failures. And that the consequences echo across years and decades and silence. And we never really know what we've done. All of us lust for something that we can say, I created this department, I created this line, I wrote this thing, I published this thing, I I created this resources, I edited this collection. I think a lot of that is to some extent, because in the time and space that we spend a huge portion of our energy, service to the college and teaching in the classroom, we don't know if we've done what we aimed to do. Yeah. I I don't feel that way. But I think it's also important to to separate out the the like neoliberal pressure for learning outcomes and commensurability, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that pressure to show. Yes. Done, you know? Yes. Yeah. Show me the skills you have created in this student. Show me the social mobility you have given to them. Even if what you did was bring them into English and convince them that they didn't want to be in high finance, but in fact, they wanted to be an activist. Show me the social mobility you've created. Let's, let's make it commensurable. Right. And that aspect of teaching, I think, you're right. You, there, there is no way to make it commensurable. There is no way to, to make it into a metric that I can put into your assessment. And in that sense, you can't show what you did. You can't do that. Yeah. But on another level, you know, I taught through the election of Trump. Mm-hmm. And I you know, had yeah. explosive classrooms. Yeah. And one of the students who came to me in the midst of that young man of color who was organizing before the election, you know, and he, says he almost dropped out of college. He wrote me a recommendation for the teaching award, which I did not win, but he wrote me a recommendation for the teaching award. And he said, Professor Chihara saved my life. I don't believe I saved his life, right? I, I was the right person in the right place when he needed someone to talk to. But he wants to be in the world that I represent to him. And, and I've been able to help him, like to usher him into that world. And it's so tangible. 
you know, mm-hmm. and it only happens if I also have my own research and writing that I'm doing because that's right. what he wants to learn, right? Yeah, he doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't need someone to just nurture and hold his hand, right? Yeah. He needed someone to show him the world that he wanted to be part of, that it existed, mm-hmm. that he could have his politics and be in the world that way. And that's very tangible for me when I when I'm able to help those students and show them this world and bring them into it and. And I have, you know, the small group, but this group of, of students who come into the world and are able to live the lives that they want to live better because of having an education in them. That feels so tangible to me. And that, that's what I mean when I see teaching redeems me. Mm-hmm. The only reason I'm still standing, the only reason I was able to, yeah. you know, get through that's that's kind of what the show gets right, right? That when, you know, when you have the, some of those conversations between Bill and Ji-Yoon, both of them for, you know, for all their faults, especially Bill's, have this passion about teaching that like, that's the thing they can't let go of, right? That's the thing that gives them purpose. That despite Bill being privileged, hopeless, he doesn't fall into complete despair, because he still sees himself as a teacher and he still sees that teaching as meaningful, even if he's not as good as maybe he thinks he is. That's right. He's supposed to, he's supposed to be so loved, but then the students do this thing where they take what he's doing out of context in a moment where it seems clear that the whole point with that was he, he's teaching about fascism. He literally put it on the board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and that's in the video. And that's why, I mean, that's why that plot line is. But it made it, made it hard to yeah. interpret yeah. when he says he yeah. loves teaching so much. But I'm like, well, which part? Because so far all we've seen is you getting your ego stroked by young women and kind of being a mess in the classroom. And vulnerability, I think, helps especially white dudes in the classroom in a way that it's, it's hard to admit. And that's in that, that uh, teaching with tension is such a good resource on all of this but um i really wanted to see i wanted to see bill being a good teacher so that when he said that yeah i knew what he's referring to not just a charismatic teacher i mean and that that is a real confusion right it's like the Mm -hmm. the difference between the charismatic teacher and who can be the very good teacher but is not always i ask to be given advisees that are first generation and what i tell them is you're here to become bilingual you need to become bilingual in the cultural and social capital of a kind of dominant class while staying intact. Not because they got it right, but because you need to be able to retire one day. Not because you believe in the value of the classical civilizing liberal arts, humanities, or whatever project. You're not here to be civilized. You're here to get class mobility. And class mobility is no fucking joke when you're going to be supporting your parents by the time you're 30. You, you know, want to not die in poverty and there's no social net. This is a, this is a nation with no social net. I tell, I try to keep my students focused on that. Uh, You know, once they're in, you know, like the institution, the institution can do that work for them. But that sense of you're here to steal, you're a thief in the temple. Like I really do think of myself as a thief in the temple and I and I try to get my students to think of themselves as a thief in the temple and also to say like look at your very privileged students your very privileged colleagues or cohort and watch them work the system with ease and entitlement and copy them. <laughs> right? Oh, their entitlement to go to student services and get the thing they need, their entitlement to work the alumni network, just that, like steal that. Even if you don't live it, steal it. Steal some of their ease in the world. I've become a vulgar Marxist, haven't I? I think I always was. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm becoming more and more uh, naked as I, as I age. Speaking of aging, um, the Holland... Taylor, mm-hmm. is that her? That's yeah. that actress, right? Yeah, uh, jo- I think the character is Joan. Yeah, Joan, what a pleasure she is. She's great. She's just so great. And yeah. I thought a lot about this term that I got from from Heather Love early on in my career, which is the hegemommies. Mm-hmm. Hegemommy is like a kind of term for you know when you you start working in gender women's studies. Again, to be clear, like I'm in English department, I'm in gender women's studies, I'm joint appointed naturally as a woman of color. It's a term for like the senior women in gender and women's studies that 
are so hurt by their experiences. These women that have just been so hurt by what they went through unimaginably. I mean, I remember hearing stories about, you know, just constantly knock, knock, knock at 11 o'clock at night. And there's the modernist with a bottle of wine. And it's always the modernists, by the way. No, I'm just telling you. (laughs) Or the early modernists. (laughs) What those women went through and then how they passed on their trauma. And really, as I transition into, I mean, what could nicely be called mid-career, but I think I'm more than halfway through, I'm really thinking a lot about how to, and again, this is part of the reason I wrote that essay, not wanting to consent to a culture of secrecy, which left me like reactive and triggered by the wrong things. What I actually am really trying to think about is how to metabolize trauma and get it out of me uh, so as to not recreate the conditions of trauma for people that are younger to me. And for instance, you know, I can say that I built the program in gender women's studies at Pomona, but, and I did, um, but now it's not mine. Right. It doesn't belong to me anymore. And the same way that I really wished that the people who had built the conditions for me to come in there had just let me run with it. I now need to let other people run with their ideas. It doesn't belong to me. And so, I mean, I really enjoyed her as the kind of senior woman stuck at associate, of course, such a fucking financial crime, the way so many women get stuck at associate and so many women of color, you know, just kind of metabolizing all of her experiences. That joke about the hand job, right? Oh my God, I think I gave him a hand job. And she's like, well, that was the president in 1924. And I thought it's funny because it's Holland Taylor and she's a genius. And also that's awful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of hand jobs and no repayment. So I'm not speaking personally, but you know what I mean? Like there's like a lot of damage and that question of like aging in the Academy and either not becoming irrelevant, which is part of the fear Mm -hmm. with compassion. Part of the fear is how do I not become irrelevant? But also, how do I not re-traumatize? And how do I not become like a horrible gatekeeper? Yep. How do I widen the gates? Yep. The hurt people hurt people thing. Yeah. I I utterly sympathize with that. That a lot of institutions, everybody who is in a position of either mentorship or gatekeeping has a whole range of bones and skeletons and scars And oftentimes they pass those on and the temptation is to then pass those on again. And how do you, how do you prevent yourself from doing that? I think is a question that I, I personally ask. Yeah. We're all thinking about underline everything you said, Keila. (laughs) I thought an enormous amount about how do you live differently like mentoring for me is supposed to mean guiding and supporting someone with their best interests at heart. And I want to mentor my students, but a lot of the trauma that I have experienced starting from a very young age has come to me through mentors mm-hmm. been either failures in mentoring or real harm. Yeah. yeah. And so Joan is so is so recognizable, but across journalism too. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of the, the senior journalists to me when I was a journalist who had come up through, you know, shitty media men, uh, they had come some really intense stuff, which the Academy also experiences. Yeah. That idea that the women who are coming up around you, people who've been through some of that seem to think that we haven't been through harassment. Um, and it, it has taken a different form since some of what Joan's character went through. Reminding myself that the students who are coming up, who are much more able to talk about feminism now, reminding myself that that doesn't mean that they haven't been through all kinds of shit, right? As a my way of not letting myself reinscribe any of that. Mm-hmm. That's been really hard. It's also been really productive work for me. Mm-hmm. I've also discovered a world of wisdom in radical Buddhists. I want to do a teacher training in Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams's system because I've started to think that maybe that's where I want to be a teacher (laughs) because of wanting to break some cycles. And because I've started to make peace with the idea that I might be irrelevant. Mm. 
and that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, or that I'm going to redefine relevance for myself. Yeah. I'm not going to be relevant in the way that some of my earlier mentors would have assessed me as relevant. Mm. That's really, yeah. This conversation actually leads really directly into the final question I wanted to ask, which is, I mean, the final line of Keela's essay is the future of the English department cannot be the same as its past. The chair is in many ways a representation of the present of the English department, but it even more so it's a representation of the past. There is a way in which this show is capturing something about an English department that is already somewhat in the rearview mirror. And that may be a strength or a weakness of of the show's representation, but it's definitely dealing with the long history of this profession. And so I wanted to think about what is that future, whether building upon Keela's essay or upon what the show represents, what are the resolutions that we should be looking for as we move past that sordid history? Let me just say, I've already been circulating the shush essay and that line throughout my institution. I think there is a moment right now in academia of possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very real. And when Sandra O oh says, I feel like I've been handed a ticking time bomb. So that mm-hmm. make sure it's a woman. And it's a woman of color too, who's holding it when it explodes. I think that's very real. But there's also real possibility in this moment. There's always a lot of wisdom in Kilo. But when you said, I built this thing and it's not mine now. Mm-hmm. There has to be more of that kind of wisdom in academia and in English in particular, what can we build and who are we handing it to? And then when we hand it to them, it can't be about validating our reading of Melville. Mm -hmm. What am I doing in the bigger picture with these amazing students who still really want higher ed? The demand for education is, is not gone. The sustainability, the neoliberal funding of it is evaporating. But the crisis, and that's where the crisis comes from. But the students want it still. And as long as we have them, the society can find a way to keep it going. Mm-hmm. What are we building? Who are we giving it to? I think if we think that way, and maybe maybe a part of it is not imagining that we have the institutional solution, but that we're building for a bigger picture of what the future might be. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I love that. That's perfect. I think that's right. The students will tell us, students will tell us what they need. I think it's desperately important not to believe a fucking thing any institution ever says to you ever. Ever. (laughs) I mean, I listen to institutions because I want to know the stories that they are telling themselves about themselves so that I can tell it to them back to them to get the things I need. But I never, ever, ever, and I learned this very early. My, you know, my third year review, my junior review at Pomona um, in, in my English department had the line that I did not have the, the intellectual ability to do scholarly work. I was devastated for a really long time about that. It really crushed me. Like I was crushed. I was, I was useless for like a good six or eight months. And when I finally got out of bed eight months later and bathed, I finally was just like, I will never believe anything an institution ever says to me ever again, that the institution narrates us to ourselves. If you know what I'm saying, it talks to us about us and then it talks to itself about itself. And it's always happening through a funhouse mirror and nothing it ever says is true. I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. Anything that institutions say. And I think we have to start believing students when they tell us things this emphasis on STEM and another word that they use at at Pomona to talk about a growing population of students of color. So we're over 52% students of color, 54% students of color, which is a big change for a place like Pomona college. And they say, Oh, they call them vocational. So like the humanists will call them vocational. Oh man. (laughs) It's so fucking racist. How can I tell a student, a a 17 year old facing down climate collapse, not to be an engineer. Mm. We have to occupy the crisis we're in. Mm-hmm. And when I say we need to occupy the crisis, I'm saying we need to occupy the world as it is, 
not listen to institutions give us bullshit about austerity because most of these institutions are just real estate ventures playing with their endowments. A hedge fund with a football team. Yeah. yeah, like it's they're not here for us. The institution is not here to serve to serve the the goal the thing that we thought we were going to be doing. They're actually the enemy. The way forward is towards a rethinking of the project of the university towards a more liberatory education. And my idea of a liberatory education is I hope an expansive one where I feel very protective of research that is not instrumentalized or utilitarian, but is still irrelevant. I'm interested in all forms of knowledge. And this is where ended in the piece. I'm interested in abundance. The narratives of scarcity that get deployed against us will like, how will we get another medievalist if we hire an Asian Americanist? It's like, actually, if you hire three Asian Americanists, you'll be able to have the enrollments to get another medievalist. Like stop thinking from this sort of like competitive um, scarcity model. Karitha, who's a person I turn to for uh, wisdom all the time, said it so beautifully in her piece in Newsweek or Time, which is like, knowing what I know about the institution, it makes no sense for me to value its evaluation of me. Mm. Straight, sensible talk. It is. They're not here for the, the well-being of the world. Not that, not that there are not a lot of good administrators who, with good intentions who are, are not our allies and staff too. But the institution of the entropy is towards financial self-preservation and values that don't align with mine. That was Keila Tompkins and Michelle Chihara. For more about their work and links to some of the materials we discussed, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash the shush. On the next episode of The American Vandal, I'll be talking to Amanda Bailey, Tita Chico, and Emily Yoon Perez about the chair and anti-racism in the contemporary university. Until then, I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.